Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So you may be aware that this is the last evening of our retreat. And it can seem surprising. Like we can remember the first night here when we showed up, when you unpacked your things, when you found your cushion or chair, tried to figure out where the bathrooms were, you know, figure out the setup here. Or for those who returned, uh, went to look at the different things around, see if anything's changed. But what happened to that beginning? You know, it's gone. And now is the beginning of the ending. So life is, is like this, like it passes fast in some ways, even when there are periods that seem to pass slow. So whenever I come here, I remember the time I spent here uh, when I was quite young. And when I sat a three-month retreat, first long retreat, I was um, mentioning to someone was 24 years ago, I was sitting in that quadrant somewhere there, you know. And I remember this, and it's interesting, like, wow, what happened to that? That's more than, more than half my life ago. And it seems to have just gone by like that. Yeah. It's helpful to notice these things. Notice also first, you know, when you had thoughts during the retreat, like, this will never end. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Either this sitting will never end, this retreat will never end, this walking period will never end, you know. And look, it's ended. <laughs> it's helpful to remember this. And sometimes uh, I make myself notice those thoughts, just to undercut them. So sometimes on uh, a long plane journey, you know, as soon as I get in, particularly if I have some like bad seat or something, you know, like, oh no, this will be forever. Yeah. So then I make myself notice when it ends, like notice it ended, right? Or sometimes when I get sick, or, you know, sometimes a thought will arise like, oh, I'll be sick forever, you know, and then it's like, notice it ended. Or even today, you know, noticing all the melting. You know, this was the first day above freezing here in weeks, months, I think. Uh, so uh, I've only been here three times over that time. So I'm sure those New Englanders have felt the relentlessness of this winter even more. Uh, but I'm sure there were times when you thought, like, will it ever stop snowing? You know, <laughs> will it ever get warm? And uh, look, it's happening. You can see the ground a little bit. And, uh, the ice is falling off the roof and all these uh, signs. I saw a squirrel today also. It's like a good sign of life. But on the other hand, this also points to this uh, aspect that we've been talking about here quite a bit, which is uh, the quickness of our lifespan. You know, it's a sign. It's not just retreats that end or plane journeys that end or sickness or winter. You know, it's actually our very life itself. And I had quoted the uh, seventh Dalai Lama um, before. I want to uh, give you the entirety of this quote. So he says, After our birth, we have no freedom to remain, even for a minute. We head towards the embrace of the Lord of Death like an athlete running. We may think that we are among the living, but our life is the very highway of death. So as we start, we're off and running. You know, boom, like that. 
or to elaborate on this, this uh, author Geshe Kelsang Gyatso in Joyful Path of Good Fortune. He says, from the moment of our conception, we head inexorably towards death, just like a racehorse galloping towards its finishing post. But even racehorses slow their pace, yet we in our race towards death never stop. While we're sleeping and while we're awake, our life slips away. Every vehicle will stop along its journey sometimes, but in our lifespan, we never stop running out. So every moment, it's here, it's gone, it's here, it's gone, it's here, it's gone. And this is true for all of us. The lifespan of a living being passes like lightning in the sky. It passes as quickly as water falling from a high mountain. So connecting with this is connecting with a truth, a basic truth of our existence, a basic truth of the way things are. And the implications of that, if we really take that in, are to help us to see clearly what are we doing? How are we spending our time? And is this the way that we want to be spending it? And what are we focusing on? What are we thinking about? How are we treating each other? This is a story from the time of the Buddha. Uh, this is called the Pabatopama Sutta, the simile of the mountains. And uh, Buddha entertained various uh, seekers and visitors and um, hostile people and friendly people, and he had some friendships with various uh, royalty of the time, too. He was, in fact, from this uh, kind of class. So once this one uh, king, King Pasanedi, Kosala approaches him in the middle of the day and he came and he paid homage to him and he sat to one side and then the Buddha said to him, so great king, where are you coming from in the middle of the day? So basically asking him like, hey, what's up? Where do you come from? And the king just says, uh, you know, I was engaged in various royal affairs uh, and he describes, he describes a bunch of things. In the way it's described here, it makes me think that someone edited this because it sounds pretty bad. He says, I was engaged in the sort of royal affairs typical of head-anointed noble warrior kings, intoxicated with the intoxication of sovereignty, obsessed by greed for sensual pleasures, <laughs> who have attained stable control in their country and who rule having conquered a great sphere of territory on earth. <laughs> so I'm thinking some like smart aleck paraphrased what he actually said uh, into this. But so basically he was doing uh, kingly stuff, right? So then the Buddha says to him, well, what do you think, great king? Supposing a person, trustworthy and reliable, were to come to you from the east and said, "Uh, your majesty, you should know that I've come from the east and I saw there a great mountain as high as the clouds and it was coming this way, crushing all living beings in its path. And you should do whatever you think should be done about this. And then a second person came from the west and said the same thing. Your majesty, there's a, a great mountain as high as the clouds coming this way, crushing all living beings in its path. And then one from the north and one from the south. So each one is saying the same thing. There are these four mountains coming from each side, and they're rolling in. They're crushing every living being on its path. So then this this king is actually a a Dharma practitioner. So he says, well, then king, then lord, if, uh, if a great peril should arise, such a terrible destruction of human life, this human state being so hard to obtain, what else should one do but dhamma conduct, right conduct, skillful deeds, uh, meritorious deeds? 
So then the Buddha says, uh, I inform you, great king, I announce to you that aging and death are rolling in on you in just this way. So what should be done? So then uh, he revises his answer from, uh, <laughs> yes. So yes, uh, then what should be done should be uh, wise conduct, skillful deeds, uh, dhamma conduct. And then the Buddha kind of talks to him about some of the things he's been doing and uh, basically says, you know, nothing that you have been amassing is going to help you at death. You know, none of your bullion and gold coins stored in wealth, none of your elephants, uh, none of this is going to help you, you know, when these mountains roll in. So he says, yes, so this this is what should be done then, uh, is wise conduct. So this, this is the instruction that the Buddha gives us is, uh, you know, what is it in summary that we should be doing in this life, given that it's short, given that only our death is certain, our time of death is uncertain, and our method of death is uncertain. So the summary of the teachings is uh, to avoid doing what is harmful or unwholesome, to do what is wholesome or good, and then to train the mind, to purify the mind. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this tonight to elaborate on this, um, particularly in the context of what we have been practicing here today. And also uh, with the understanding that you will soon be out of retreat and acting in a different context too. So this first one about avoiding what is unwholesome. Sometimes it's translated as avoid evil or uh, Commit not a single unwholesome act. That's the instruction. So that's kind of a high bar. Commit not a single unwholesome act. But it's good. What if you took that as a serious instruction? You know, not not just like, well, I do this little thing. But you know, it's like, oh, yeah, death is rolling in on me. Like, you know, what do I want to have printed on my gravestone? You know. Uh, And actually, these days now, in some ways, because um, of the ubiquitousness. Trying to use big words since my friend uses big words now too. Um, of the cell phones, uh, you know, like actually your conduct is caught very often doing things that otherwise maybe you would you would uh, like get away with, right? Uh, and this is kind of for better or for worse in our world. You know, in some ways it's actually tightening up uh, conduct in a number of areas, um, such as um, married Congress people who espouse family values but are trolling the internet for dates or you know any such things, right? Um, so, you know, what would you like to be, to, to have as your last act on earth, you know? I mean, it's an intense thing to think about, but when you think about doing something slightly shady, you know, it's good to reflect, like, oh, what, do I want this remembered? Would I want this to be my last thing on earth, right? So fortunately in this avoid what is uh, unwholesome, we have the very specific guidelines around the training precepts, and as we got into the world, there are um, really helpful things in which paying attention to our body will, will uh, help us to attend to this. So uh, to avoid killing, avoid harming life, you know, um, specifically with our body. So in an act of aggression, you know, sometimes you might find yourself like mid-swat, right? And then like, oh, remember this. And there's something powerful about actually taking these um, trainings, taking these precepts as determinations. Um, if you're interested in doing that, like in the morning or something like that, like taking these as trainings. And as we've been talking about, they're not things that are supposed to be 
like commandments or um, absolutes, but they really are trainings through which we see cause and effect. You know, they're kind of like bumper guards on our conduct, you know, where we might otherwise kind of careen out of control. It's like, boom, oh, you're right, that thing about not killing living beings. Right? Here's a living being, right? Okay, put the arm down. Uh, avoiding stealing. So also in the act of taking things, you know, there's a grasping. There's a physical grasping that happens usually. I mean, sometimes maybe if it's online, there's like a little less movement. But uh, mostly in taking, it's like, like a, a large physical motion happens. So attending to our body, like what is it up to? What are we up to with the physical body? Right? Uh, harm with our sexual activity. So also very much a, a dimension of our animal body. Uh, in this case, both the physical body, but there's also on more subtle levels, um, paying attention to the energy that we emanate. You know, so uh, what kind of energy we're putting out towards people and whether that is something that is wholesome, whether it's making people uncomfortable, you know, whether it's coercive in some way. Right? Uh, but at least paying attention to the body and then on the more subtle levels uh, going out. Then uh, our intake of drugs and alcohol and how that impacts our behavior. Um, so also something to notice, you know, when we reach for something, when we reach for whatever it is. And in the more broad uh, statement of this precept um, that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about, uh, he talks about paying attention to uh, all the things that we take in to our body and mind and how that impacts us. So that includes food, it includes drink, it includes uh, what videos we watch, it includes um, the things we read, uh, you know, what websites you go to. Like all of this actually uh, impacts our mind also. So he talks about taking the training for a diet for healthy, healthy self, healthy planet, healthy community. You know, noticing impact on these broader levels. And then speech. You know, speech is a more subtle movement of the the body, the tongue, waggling around. You know, um, but we could actually notice. You know, even if to take the intention to notice when we're about to speak, is interesting. We can start to notice the energy building. You know, there's a little like pumping up that has to happen. Uh, and then see, like, okay, is this something that I want to say? Is this something that's useful to say? Um, is this true? Check in with the intention. Yeah. So for this first part about the uh, commit not a single unwholesome act, you know, attending to our body is extremely helpful. Then there's the other side of um, doing good things, doing good. Uh, and the translation I like of this is cultivate a wealth of virtue. So this speaks to actually not cultivating a wealth of money, but actually cultivating a wealth of virtue, referring to uh, cause and effect. So that through actually uh, doing generous things, doing kind things for others, you know, that actually makes us wealthy in some different way. So sometimes we, we wonder, uh, like, well, how do I get out of this suffering? And I know from sitting here for a long time, attending to your body, but then having the mind go through its courses, it can be very tiring after a while, isn't it? I mean, you get to see all the craziness of the mind and all its manifestations and uh, a lot of thoughts and obsessions and dragged around from the past, the future, everything, you know. Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche says, um, rest in natural peace, this exhausted mind. 
beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thoughts, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace. So after a couple of days of sitting here, I can relate to this, isn't it? The relentlessness of the thought sometimes. It's just on and on and on. So a good question that arises for people is like, how do I stop this? You know, how can I suffer less? And one quick answer that I would give you that will be helpful for you uh, in your outside life too is don't think about yourself so much. Seriously, like don't think about yourself so much. <laughs> the amount of time that we spend thinking about ourselves and like this is me, this is my story, these are my problems, this is what I want, this is what I used to want, this is what I will want, this is who I was, this is who I will become, this is who I think I am, this is who other people think I am, <laughs> this is who I want other people to think I am. Right? And I didn't even fill in any of those blanks. And you, you know, it's, it's like a lot of stuff. <laughs> so one way to instantly put it down is actually to do something good for someone else. So acts of generosity, acts of kindness. It instantly takes us out of our story. Our story of like, oh, here's me and here's my problems and my difficulties. Now, immediately might start up another story like, I'm so good, I'm doing generous things, right? <laughs> so then you can catch that if you can, right? Uh, but you do the best you can with it. And um, I think this was um, talked about in the, the afternoon, um, the talk about generosity and the Dana talk and so on. And um, it's, it's really kind of built into this system here for this reason. You know, it's like part of the... Uh, is part of the financial, structural way this place works and that the Dharma is transmitted in this tradition. Um, and it's radical and it's crazy. You know, like I have an MBA. I was actually being asked to start teaching Dharma while I was getting my MBA. And uh, part of my resistance was I was like, how is that going to work? Like, how will I live if I am asked to do that? You know, it's very out of sync with like market-based capitalism, right? <laughs> It doesn't actually make any sense in this, this context, you know. And yet there's many um, examples of where we see this, you know, the, the beauty of generosity and the beauty of, uh, of living in this way is actually so beneficial. You know, it gives so many more gifts than just like, it costs this, give me this, a very transactional thing. So part of this, this system is actually to cultivate that as part of the entire structure. You know, it's trying to be like aligned in some way. So I saw a video recently about um, a restaurant. Uh, some of you might have um, heard about a restaurant, this restaurant, and it's like a, actually a pizza restaurant in um, New York. And so if you're in New York, you know, there's like the dollar pizza slice places that you may or may not frequent. <laughs> so in this one, apparently the guy said that um, he had some other job in Wall Street or something. He decided to open a pizza place. And then um, one day someone came in to the pizza place and said, um, hey, do you ever have like homeless people coming in and saying they're hungry? And the guy was like, yeah, we do. So he was like, well, can I um, pay for one slice for the next person who comes in? And the guy was like, yeah, okay. You know? So then he thought, well, how, how will I keep track of that? How will I remember this? So he went and got some Post-its, right? So then he'd stick a Post-it on the wall. 
And so the next person came in, they were like, what's, what's the post-it for? So then he explained, and they were like, oh, that's so cool, I'll buy a piece for someone. You know, so instead of paying $1, they paid $2, right? They got a piece and then this thing, right? And so then the next time someone came in to ask for a pizza, uh, apparently it was someone who had like less than the amount, like 36 cents or something. And he was like, oh, don't worry, someone has paid for this already. And they were like, really? Like, what? You know, and so then he took down a post-it and he explained this and then the guy got to eat pizza, right? Uh, and then this kind of built, you know, people were like, what are the post-its for? They got explained. Then they were like, oh, that's great, that's beautiful. Here, I'll, I'll give $5, like one piece of pizza for me and four for whoever else shows up, you know. So then in this film, you can see in the walls of this pizza place are filled with all these different colored post-its. <laughs> and then now people have sometimes written uh, little notes on the post-it, you know, like well-wishing or, you know, picture or something like that, right? And so then it's known as this place where people go to both offer generosity but also uh, to receive the generosity. And so it's kind of through the conduit of pizza <laughs> that, uh, that this is happening, right? Uh, and... It's, it's actually a very beautiful thing. And you could, they had little interviews with some of the people who were offering, and um, they explained like, how happy it made them uh, to do this. And one lady said, like, yeah, you know, I, every time I come, I try to uh, give a couple bucks more for this. And then she said, and one day I came in, and like, I actually didn't have enough money. But then I thought, like, oh, it's okay. And like, I took a Post-it, and then I got a piece of pizza. You know? um, so you know, just because it's hard to explain, in some ways, like that's what we're doing here. Like you know, we have given up our regular jobs, and this is like the generosity-based economy. So uh, someone has taught me that which I am now imparting to you. Someone has taught all of us. Uh, when I was a young person and came here, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot to offer, uh, and I was allowed to come and to learn because I was a very sincere practitioner. Right? And then someone so far has. Uh, fed us and given us enough to put a roof over our heads and clothe us to the extent we are fabulously attired and so on, right? <laughs> and everything, you know, health insurance, everything. Like, it, you know, people have supported us thus far. So in some ways, like, you are paying it forward to support us to continue on, right? Uh, so we don't have post-its and, you know, the medium is not pizza, it's dharma. But uh, in some ways, like, we're part of this radical system here of uh, generosity, So doing something generous for, uh, for people is a good way to step out of our self-absorption. Doing something kind for someone, you know, also, uh, when we don't have to, when it's not our job to do that. Uh, so cultivating the good in this way uh, and doing that kind of habitually, doing that as a way to train yourself. Uh, and each of these trainings also untrains one of the other things. So training in generosity uh, is counter to planting seeds of greed or craving or grasping. And doing something kind for someone is uh, countering the seeds of aggression or violence that come up. And then this third one that we have been uh, engaged in a lot is this path of training and purifying the heart and mind. And also, I should say, you know, these practices that we've been doing here are another way to help you drop out of suffering quickly. So if there's some point in which you're roiling in something in the mind, you know, find something in the body that you can connect to, like connect with the breath, connect with the bo- body touching the ground. You know, something very simple to help pull you out of that delusion, you know, pull you out of that 
horrible cave painting that you've made and are like staggering from, you know, right? Like just feel feet on the ground, feel the breath, feel your hands, you know, something. And it can, it can stop just like that. You know, it's amazing. Like we create these complex things and <coughs> it can be cut just like that. So training the, the heart and mind then is uh, training ourselves to see what is true and to cultivate these qualities like mindfulness, concentration, balance, uh, to attain insight that will allow us to be free. So in recognizing what's true about our life, you know, we've been talking about this in many different ways. Um, and sometimes to get perspective on where we are, it's helpful to travel. You know, sometimes when you travel, you uh, can get a different sense. Like, oh, I assumed like we did it this way here all the time, but oh, look, they're doing it that way. You know, whatever it is, like how people talk to each other or eat or what their assumptions are. You know, traveling is good in this way. So for that reason, I'd like to take you on a little trip through some of the realms of existence. So in the um, Buddhist cosmology, uh, we are here in the human realm. <laughs> that is true in all, probably the common <laughs> understanding too, right? Um, but this is actually just one level uh, of different realms of beings uh, who are kind of together called in the realm of um, kamaloka, like the world of desire, the worlds of desire, the areas of desire. And then there are other realms, like much higher, much lower. But uh, for the moment, I'm going to stick with uh, focusing on our little slice of, uh, slice of the universe here. And now you can take this how you like. You can take it as interesting science fiction, mythology. Um, you can take it as uh, something that describes something that might possibly be true, that's interesting. Uh, I like to point you also to listen as you hear about these different realms, because in the human realm, we exist in the same realm as the animals with an animal body, but actually our mind has extreme mobility. So as I describe them, you will notice that your mind has probably traveled to all these realms, perhaps even just today. So we can start from the bottom. Um, So the hell realms. So there are many different hell realms, but to uh, encapsulate them uh, a little bit, uh, there are these areas of um, characterized by claustrophobic aggression, hatred, and anger. So beings in the hell realms do not have freedom of action. Uh, they suffer greatly. They have actually little um, life force energy. So they kind of like don't have the energy to like even get out of it or figure out what to do. You know? um, so they feel very like trapped by their circumstances. So hell realm is there's like all kinds of descriptions of the suffering of the hell realms, like hot hell realms and extremely cold hell realms and boiling hell realms, you know, this, that, and the other. But anyway, it's just all bad all the time, right? Then there's another realm in which the beings are trapped by possessiveness and desire. So there's a realm of the hungry ghosts. So in this realm, the beings uh, have a pinhole for a mouth, uh, but insatiable hunger. 
So when the pictures are drawn, they have these huge bellies. So they're always hungry, but they can never get enough. It's like tiny straw-like mouth. So they have these desires for food. You could even say uh, that it could be related, this insatiable desire that sometimes comes up, relentless craving for uh, anything, wealth, power, uh, fame even. Right? So it's characterized by addiction, by obsession, and by compulsion. So already these two we can relate sometimes, right? So in the hell realms, anytime that you have been obsessed with aggression or hatred or anger, you know, jealousy, something like that, in that moment, you are in the hell realms. You know, you have taken birth, so to speak, in the hell realms in the mind. The body is still in the animal realm. This is why you can sort of ground yourself through the body. But the mind has already gone there. So hungry ghost realm, when there is an obsession, you know, when the mind gets obsessed with something, like particularly like a food thing or something, and it's just completely focused on that, like nothing else. It feels possessed, really. So pay attention to that. In that moment, sometimes even just recognizing that, uh, like, wow, this is hungry ghost realm, uh, can help you to distance from that enough that you're not identified and you don't feel like you have to do that. In this realm, the beings lack willpower, and they have the, actually the inability to enjoy the fruition of what they get. So even if they get something, they can't enjoy it. They just want more. Then we have the animal realm. So we actually overtly cohabitate with the animal realm. So the dogs, the squirrels, the birds, all that, animals. In the animal realm, uh, it's governed by instinct. So basic instinct for food, sex, sleep. Uh, There's a lot of fear, actually, also. Uh, There's no morality, really. So basically just uh, focused on these drives and getting what you want. And uh, they live in the present moment, but without any kind of uh, mindfulness, ethical guidelines, and so on. Uh, and there's a lot of preying on weaker beings. So it's a harsh world in the animal world. You know? And certain parts of the human world are like this too. Isn't it? Like smaller ones get beaten up and uh, bigger ones dominate and things like this. Then there's a realm that's called the realm of the demigods. And in this realm, it's characterized by uh, selfish ego. So by competitiveness, uh, by jealousy, by being paranoid about things. Uh, These beings have this need to be superior all the time. So they're driven uh, to try to succeed. But they're also always like watching their back, worried about someone else coming up. They're slave to delusion, and they view all others as threats. And actually, this need to be superior can be attached to mundane wealth or even to spiritual things. So thinking you're better than someone else, like spiritually, is part of that, too. So in this, this realm of demigods, they have kind of more power, but actually they're pretty miserable. You know, and you can also think of times in which you've been caught in this, some competitiveness maybe at work or um, for some reward or idea of something, right? Sometimes in the top levels of like some companies or uh, of uh, like warring areas in government, it's kind of like that too. Right? So then we have the human realm. I'll pause and come back to that one. And then the 
top one is the realm of the heavens, so heavenly realms. In the heavenly realms, everything is pleasant. Uh, it's characterized by uh, pleasure. All your desires are fulfilled. It's rapturous. There's splendid happiness. It seems like everything is good, except that it too is subject to impermanence. Dun, dun. So it's interesting they say that beings take birth in this heavenly realm, and uh, it's so good that they forget that they sort of took birth there. They forget that they have some lifespan. And there's really nothing to make them be introspective in any way. So they just enjoy their lives with, you know, they have these very light bodies, everything smells nice, until supposedly like the very end of their life, very quickly they start to smell bad and like decay, you know, <laughs> and then they pass away. So the human realm is considered the best place to be because it has the mix of pleasure and pain. So uh, if you never thought to thank your body odor, this is like a you know, <laughs> reminder that uh, it's not all perfect here, right? Uh, so we have these animal bodies and we have these drives. We, we get hungry and we get sleepy and we get thirsty and we have pain in the body. And all of this stuff reminds us that we're going to die. It reminds us that we're part of this like temporary realm. So this dukkha is like you're kicking the pants. You're like alarm bell, you know, in a way that those in the heaven realms don't have. So you probably can relate to this too sometimes. Like sometimes even in meditation, the mind becomes really kind of quiet and peaceful. And, you know, very much in in this um, tradition of Buddhist meditation, it's like it's good to experience that, it's good to develop that, but don't stop there. You know, meditation is not about building like a kind of cool mental rec room for you to go hang out in, you know. (laughs) And then to go back to and like redecorate or something, you know. So you know we want to we want there's more possible than that. So we want to um, develop like all of these different qualities that can give us this resiliency of mind that can give us the possibility to have insight that can liberate the mind uh, in more than just this temporary uh, way. So this is the the training of the mind. In the training of the mind, you know, watch as we go up and down this whole continuum, and sometimes it can happen even in one 45 minute period, you know. Like you have some memory of something that happened in the past, maybe like a ex uh, partner, and then you drop into the hell realms, right? For a little while, and like you're jealous, you imagine them with someone else, like uh, you know, tortured, tormented, right? Um, then someone sneezes uh, around you, right? So some of you think sneezing is bad, but some of sneezing pulls someone out of the hell realm, right? And then you remember, like, so it takes some some breaths like this. Then, though, you maybe you start to get hungry, and then. Uh, the mind moves to obsession, right? So then maybe you get caught in this like hungry ghost realm for a while, obsession, wanting something. Um, Then maybe the heater pings, right? Or or some moment of mindfulness re-emerges from seeds planted in the past, right? You're back, right? Then you start to feel the pain of the animal body. The animal body starts to get shifty, hot, cold, itchy, all these things. You know, in this way, we think we're better than the animals, but we're really like, we really are like my little doggy friend I was describing before, you know, itching, sleeping, rolling over, all this stuff. Like the body wants to do these things, right? So we feel this and learn with the mind stability, right? Sometimes maybe for a little while we're in the heaven realms. Everything's really good. During those times, you want the retreat to last forever, right? You start to sign up for the three-month retreat in your head. <laughs> like, I'm going to go to a monastery. I'm going to ordain, right? Then something happens, you come back. 
So notice this, you know, notice this, this uh, uh, mobility that we have in the mind. It's very interesting to see this. And as we, we train in this mobility in the mind, uh, we learn also about the ways of the mind and the way that the world gets created. And this is really helpful to bring all three of them together, you know, the training of the mind and doing what's good and avoiding doing things that are unwholesome. You know, this kind of, of package will serve us very well in the world. So we can see the results um, of the world that we have uh, through the lack of these three trainings. So for example, uh, something that has uh, been concerning me of late is seeing the rise of Islamophobia that's there in the world. You know, this fear of uh, Muslims in our country. And in fact, there have been these studies of, uh, in, in different European and American countries, uh, how many people do people think are Muslim in your country and how many people are actually Muslim? And it's amazing like how uh, the citizens of these countries overestimate the population of Muslims. So in France, uh, apparently the average answer was 31% of the country is Muslim and actually it's 8%. In Belgium, they assumed 29% was Muslim. Actually, it's 6%. In Canada, assumed 20% of the people were Muslim. Actually, 2%. England, there was an estimate 21% of people are Muslim. Actually, it's 5%. And even in the United States, there was an estimate of 15% of the people. Actually, it's only 1%. Right? Similarly, some uh, guesses about how many people are immigrants in your country. Uh, vast overestimates. So for the U.S., people thought it was one-third of the country. Actually, it's 13%. And then some underestimation of uh, how many people do you think are Christian in your country? Uh, So in the U.S., people said, oh, 56% or like close to half. And actually, the truth is 78% of people are Christian. So it's, it's very interesting. Here we see the mind. You know, perception is one of the qualities of mind that arises. And... uh, it really helps if we can see that our perceptions are not always true. You know, we misperceive things regularly. We misperceive the fact that there is no solid, permanent entity of self. And we misperceive things about others all the time. And when we don't have the ability to see through this, you know, it can have very, very fatal consequences for uh, people around us, for ourselves, for our society. So uh, some of you may be aware of the movements that have been going on around racial justice lately. And um, actually, while we're here on this retreat, it was the commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Selma to Montgomery march. Uh, And uh, there was a big kind of reenactment of that, like a a march with uh, a lot lot of people came from all over. It's very inspiring uh, to see that. And yet at the same time, you know, the shooting of unarmed young black men, young men of color, uh, continues to happen in the country. And that also happened over the weekend. Uh, that also has continued to happen. And in many of these cases, it seems like there is also a misperception you know, on the part of usually the police officer or the person shooting. There's this misperception of someone as being much more dangerous than they are. So there was a misperception in one case. There was a young man in uh, Cleveland, Tamara Rice, who is actually, I believe he was 12 years old, 
uh, and he had a toy gun. And a uh, police car came up, and within, I think it was like five seconds, they shot him dead. You know, this happened several months ago. But you know, and in the account that the police officer gave, uh, he described him as like a 25-year-old. You know, he completely misperceived this this young guy. And you look at the picture of him, and he's not that big. Like it's like uh, this is a projection of the mind that's happening. You know, projection of the mind that is having fatal responses. Uh, this happened uh, before our, our retreat that. Uh, there was three young Muslim Americans who were killed in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, beautiful young people, uh, Dia Shadi Barakat, uh, Yasser Muhammad, and Razan Muhammad Abu Salah. And two of them were dental students and were married, and uh, I think they were in their early 20s maybe, and one was the sister, uh, the sister of the woman who was a, um, like an architecture student, I think. Uh, and the t- two women uh, wore the uh, the veil, so were identified as Muslims, and they were uh, shot dead, you know, execution style to the head, uh, by one of their neighbors. So some some perception and fear of people, and in, when you see the the stories of these young people, they're like they're such good people, like this this one guy Dia, he's like uh, he was organizing a, a dental clinic for refugees. Uh, in Syria, for Syrian refugees, right? And he's like trying to organize to go and help fix the teeth of refugees. Like such a good-hearted person. You know, you watch his video. Uh, and he was like a big fan of basketball, apparently. They show him like goofing off with basketball. And one of the, um, his wife is like throwing a basketball backwards into the hoop. And it's awesome because she's wearing her like veil and she throws it backwards and it goes in from like mid-court, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they're so excited about this and stuff, you know. Uh, but still, like some perception of these people as dangerous, you know, a misperception is there. And even while we've been on this retreat, also uh, another uh, sad occurrence in Texas, there was a Iraqi uh, man who had come here actually just 20 days ago as a refugee. Um, so he actually fled Iraq um, because of violence there, and he came to join his wife, who had been waiting for him for like a year. And uh, apparently in Dallas it snowed, which it doesn't snow very much. It snowed like three and a half inches. So they went outside to like take pictures of the snow. Uh, and um, someone came and shot them, shot him actually. Uh, so the wife also wearing a veil, uh, just shot him dead. And these instances continue, you know, not for people perceived to be Muslims. For uh, There's been anti-Muslim graffiti on Hindu temples. There have been hundreds of instances of hate crimes against Sikhs, right, who wear turbans, uh, some perception, misperception of uh, danger. And I can say even in, in my family, as people who are uh, South Asians, uh, certainly many instances of being uh, suspected of something, of being uh, attempted to arrest uh, family members of mine uh, for no good reason, for being suspicion of being terrorists, being prevented from flying on planes, you know, and so on. So we, we misperceive each other all the time, you know. Uh, and it's, it's helpful for us to see how the mind works, not just for our own liberation, but actually for the liberation of all of us, you know, to see through the projections that we have. So before I was uh, teaching Dharma, I, uh, I had an MBA, and then I worked in consulting for a while. 
and I would go to conferences and uh, you know I'd have a little suit on and a little badge and folder my conference in some hotel and um, I have a good pedigree I have like a bachelor's degree from Harvard I have an MBA from Yale I'm at the conference and then it would happen to me repeatedly that uh, mostly guys would try to hand me their dishes you know? <laughs> or uh, they would ask me where the coffee was you know uh, and it would just be expected that I was going to be a service person in this hotel because I'm a woman of color, right? Like it was just, like, the, but I'm, I'm dressed exactly, like I'm, I couldn't be dressed more for the conference. You know, I'm wearing a suit, I have a badge, I have the folder, right? It's like, I could, you know, I, like there's nothing out of, you know, it's, the only thing that you're not seeing is like here, right? You know, these projections and um, it's real, you know, this, is, this happens like all the time. Uh, and in these cases, you know, this was not fatal, but it, as I'm describing, like sometimes these, these cases, they happen in ways that are, in fact, fatal. Right? So these projections affect how much we perceive each other to be worth. You know, so we're here in the animal realm. We're kind of knocking around these different animals and kind of like you know, dogs knocking around in the dog park and they're like looking at each other, smelling each other, <laughs> right? You know? uh, and there is this level on which there becomes this uh, pecking order, right? Like whose life is worth more, uh, who's there to serve, uh, who's more valuable, right? And it's based on perception. And we all have been conditioned in this way, you know. Like none of us have escaped being conditioned in this way, you know, including myself. So it's, it's really helpful for us to start to see through this uh, for ourselves, for others, you know, both for the internalized oppression that we have and then how we treat each other. There's so much that happens that is beneath the surface, you know, beneath, below the surface of our overt uh, conscious mind. So if you start to see these patterns playing out, it's helpful. It's helpful to notice the ways in which our habitual patterns play out in the world. We don't have to take them personally, but we do have to put effort towards seeing them, you know. So see the ways in which we have been trained to become afraid of certain people, you know, and question whether that's actually true. See the ways in which we have been trained to value certain people more and question whether that's actually true. So sometimes people ask me, in the the Buddhist uh, um, belief system, is there an idea of like a soul or something like that? And they say, you know, there's not something like a soul in the way that uh, there is in Christianity or something like that. Um, but there is a deep reverence for life. You know, and that's in the precepts themselves, a reverence for life of all kinds. So reverence for animals, reverence for humans of all sorts, reverence for living beings. Yeah. And the Buddha himself, in, in his uh, setting up of his order of monastics, was very radical in 600 BC to actually say, there's no caste system involved here. This is not like 1963, mind you. This is like 500-something BC. You know, he's like, when you enter the order of monks, you can't be like, oh, I don't want to sit with that guy because he was a lower caste than me. It's like, nope, that's not on. You know, Everyone is in. Everyone shaves their head. Everyone gets a new name. You leave your wealth behind. You leave your family name behind. Uh, the thing that we are working with here is training the heart and mind, and everyone is equal in that. So it's very inspiring to me to be part of this tradition for this reason. It's like, uh, nobody gets to be a VIP, but nobody is unworthy. You know? uh, 
And then actually, much like Martin Luther King Jr. said in his speech uh, at the March on Washington, I dream of the day when my children will be judged by their character and not by the color of their skin. So we try to set things up here in some way that will support both enacting that, but also developing the training of mind that will allow us all to realize that. You know, we have a ways to go as a society, and we each have ways to go and things to learn as individual people. And yet, it's good to appreciate, we've done a great thing here for five days, six days, you know, spending time in this training. It's taken a lot of courage. It's taken a lot of persistence. And it actually is a great act of compassion for ourselves and for our world. So I thank you for your efforts here so far. And please don't consider that the retreat is ending, even though it might look like it. So our training continues. The path continues. There's time this evening. There's time tomorrow. And then in some ways you could consider the retreat will continue an equal amount of time outside of the retreat as happened inside of the retreat. Please try not to judge your practice of whether it went well or badly or what you learned. We don't know. You know, we're actually like tiny ants on this vast map. You know, just trust. All you could be asked to do is do your best, put in your time, and then the learning will come forth. So thank you for your attention to the Dhamma. Let's just sit together for a moment then. Commit not a single unwholesome act. Cultivate a wealth of virtue. And train this mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas.